following is a gospel recording from the Church of Christ. There may be concepts and terms that are difficult to understand. Please visit us to learn more. Then here's the challenge for you, Mr. Skeptic. We want you to begin writing a book. We want you to begin writing a book that's going to foretell things that won't happen for another 4,000 years. We want you to write a book that is going to have prophecies in it that are going to be fulfilled not now but long after you Mr. Skeptic are dead in fact you're going to have to work together with 39 other writers from different periods of time in different parts of the world and you're going to have to work together with these people who haven't even been born yet to compile a book that has zero errors, that prophesies about world empires that have not even come into power yet. And we want to know what those next four big major world empires are going to be. Not the ones that are in power today, not the big nations and powers that are in today. We want to know what those future powers are going to be, by the way. And we want you to foretell all this and reveal scientific knowledge to us that hasn't even been discovered yet. Mr. Skeptic, and we want you to give us a better Jesus than the Jesus we read about here. Give me a better Jesus Christ who has a higher standard of morality than Jesus Christ of the Bible. Give me a Jesus who has a better mission than saving every soul on the face of the earth, Mr. Skeptic. Give me a Jesus who has a better family history than Jesus the Son of God himself who existed from everlasting in the past and give me a Jesus who can perform more miracles more powerful miracles and I want you to tell me the details about when he's going to be born where he's going to be born what he's going to do when he comes to this earth and what he's going to do after even his death but here's another part of this challenge, Mr. Skeptic. You have to present all of this as a work of historical facts. This is not a work of fiction. You have to present this as historical fact, not as some fictional story that men would read as they would a fictional novel. And by the way, your Jesus that you invent in your mind is going to have to have a more powerful impact over this world for 20 centuries after he allegedly comes into existence. More influence over this world than our Jesus has had over this world for the past 2,000 years. And more than millions upon millions of people who will die believing and holding on to their faith, in fact, choosing death sometimes rather than denying the identity of your Jesus. 
Friends, I hope you see how ridiculous and how impossible it would be. You can't give us a better Jesus than what we've already got. And what we've got is a reality. We're going to prove that tonight. Our faith is not based upon mythological information. You think Jesus Christ is just like Hermes or Mars? One of these mythological gods of the Romans or the Greeks? You think Jesus is just like Spider-Man or Superman or Batman? That he's just a fictional character that somebody made up? Can we not see the difference between Spider-Man and Jesus Christ? Well, the problem is many people don't want to see the truth. And it's almost as if they would rather believe in Spider-Man and believe in Jesus Christ. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Also, yes. They don't want God in their minds. So they deny it. Even when the evidence is staring them in the face. And listen, if you don't want to believe in Jesus Christ, no matter what evidence is presented, then you know, perhaps I won't be able to convince you. But if you're an open-minded person, Tonight, you're going to see evidence that is undeniable. Jesus Christ was, is, and always will be who he claimed to be. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and today, Hebrews 13. You know, some religions, both ancient and modern, require no historical basis whatsoever. They depend upon ideas rather than events, but Christianity is not one of those. There are religions out there who will take a certain philosophy and say, well, we're going to make a, a new religion about this new concept that we've got. Christianity is not simply some new concept, like the Athenians like to talk about some new thing all the time in Acts 17. Well, this is something that is based upon evidence. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The American Standard Version says the conviction, the conviction of things not seen. And if you have conviction in Christ tonight, then you're on the right path. Because that is the path of truth, and that is where the evidence lies. And where do we get that evidence? <clears throat> How do we know Jesus really existed in the first place? Well, we can get evidence even from his enemies. It's easier for people today, some 2,000 years removed from the time of Jesus Christ, it gets a little bit easier as time goes on for people to deny that Jesus was a real person. But these people who lived closer to the time of Jesus, you know what? They were not arguing that Jesus did not really exist. Did they like Jesus? No, they didn't like him. In fact, the people of Jesus, they didn't like him. That's why he was put to death. But they did not deny that he existed. Because they could not. There was too much evidence. So we have, for example, the record of Pliny the Younger, governor of the region of Bithynia around A.D. 61 to 113, and he was writing to the Roman Emperor Trajan. And he said, quote, I interrogated them 
whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question twice again, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. He used the term Christ three times and Christian or Christians seven times, indicating that this terminology was not unknown to the Roman emperor or the empire itself. They knew about Christianity, and they knew that there was someone who was called Christ. In fact, these people right here are dying. They are willing to be punished in extreme ways rather than to deny the reality of Jesus Christ, the identity of Jesus Christ as the divine Son of God. And this is near the time when the New Testament was still being revealed. Pliny also wrote that Christians were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds. Well, obviously this man has a, he's looking at Christianity from afar, but he can see something that looks very familiar to us. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart of the Ephesians 5, 19. Upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break the bread and so forth, Acts 20, verse 7. So he could see all these things, and there's no denying that Christianity was spreading like wildfire, even before the end of the first century AD, which is exactly, of course, what we're in the time. But right now, we're looking at extra biblical sources of information, such as the record of Tacitus, Roman historian, living from around 1856 to 120. This is what he wrote. Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Crispus, had been executed in Tiberius' reign by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilatus. But in spite of this temporary setback, the deadly superstition had broken out afresh not only in Judea, where the mischief had started, but even in Rome. Now, think about this for just a moment. Here he is, and he's a Roman historian. He's not a Christian, okay? And in fact, he calls Christianity a deadly superstition. But even though he's trying to write negatively about Christianity, in another sense, he is affirming the existence of Jesus Christ, and he is affirming exactly what the gospel accounts record about him being put to death by Pontius. So, even the enemies of Christ are affirming the truth here. You know, Christianity has gotten a bad rap 
all the way from the very beginning. In fact, I don't have this on the screen, but there were false accusations being made against Christians in the Roman Empire, such as, well, they are incestuous. They commit incest. Now, why would somebody make that accusation? Because, oh, he married his sister. Well, guess what? I married my sister in Christ. <laughs> right? But see, people will take the truth and they will either misunderstand it or they will twist it in a negative way to make it look like, oh, they're just a cult. Let me tell you what else they do. They're cannibals. <laughs> no, I'm serious. When they meet in private, they are eating flesh and drinking blood. <laughs> And they're marrying their brothers and their sisters. See, misinformation, misinformation, okay? But no matter what, even the enemies of Jesus Christ were talking about him because they knew he was real. And none of these people were saying Jesus never existed, that he was just a myth. The record of Suetonius, popular Roman writer, A.D. 69 to 140. Suetonius declared that Claudius had expelled the Jews from Rome because they were continually making disturbances at the instigation of Christmas. Luke records this in Acts 18 too. Found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come to Italy with his wife Priscilla because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome. Well, here we have a Roman writer that is telling us the same thing. You know, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews there from every nation under heaven, including some from Rome. And very possible, very likely, that some of those were converted, and guess where they went? Back home to Rome. And there goes Christianity to Rome. So, so the gospel was being spread. Jesus Christ, the news of him and all his wonderful, marvelous, miraculous deeds and being raised from the dead and all these great, great things were being spread and a lot of people didn't like it. You know, people can be afraid of things that are new. A lot of people don't like things that involve change. And Christianity was about to change the world. It was in the process of turning the world upside down in a sense, as it says in the book of Acts. The record of Celsus, pagan philosopher, AD 178. Celsus produced the oldest existing literary attack against Christianity. His work called True Discourse was an assault upon Christ. He argued that Jesus was born in low circumstances being the illegitimate son of a soldier named Panthera. Now, do you see some similarities between that name and this Greek word right here? Parthenos, virgin. Celsus claims that as Jesus grew, he announced himself to be God, deceiving many, and that Christ's own people killed him. Celsus did not believe in the resurrection of Christ, but Celsus never question the historicity of Jesus. There are going to be others who are going to make this same mistake here. Because it seems what happens, just like we're talking about cannibalism 
and incest. There's also a perversion of this where people were saying he's the son of the virgin. And yet somehow it got twisted or corrupted into he's the son of somebody named Pandera or Panthera. See? The record of Lucian of Samosata called the Voltaire of Grecian Literature, AD 115-200. Lucian wrote against Christianity with great contempt and patronization. He said Christians worshipped the well-known sophist who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced new mysteries. He did not deny the existence of Jesus nor his crucifixion. Porphyry of Tyre, Greek philosopher around AD 260. Porphyry of Tyre was born around AD 233. He studied philosophy in Greece, lived in Sicily where he wrote 15 books against the Christian faith. In one of his books, Life of Pythagoras, he contended that magicians of the pagan world exhibited greater powers than Christ. His argument was an inadvertent concession of Jesus' existence and power. So look what he's admitting. What's implied in this statement is that Christ has power and that he is real. Oh, but these other magicians have no power. <laughs> other pagan writers were not necessarily enemies of Christianity, but they reported the fact that Christ existed, such as Thallus, AD 52, Mara bar Sarabian, AD 70 and Plagon AD 80 to 140. Okay, well, what about another type of writing? What about uninspired Jewish writings? Now, if you still claim to be a Jew after the news of Jesus Christ, then obviously, religiously, you wouldn't be a Christian if you call yourself a Jew in that sense. But we do have someone you've probably heard of before, Flavius Josephus. Jewish historian, AD 37-101. Well, Josephus gave us the earliest non-Christian testimony to the Lord's existence. In Antiquities of the Jews, he referred to Jesus twice. In one passage, he called Jesus the Christ. He referred to his marvelous deeds and alluded to his death and resurrection. Josephus wrote the trial of James and identified him as the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ. Okay? Josephus, we wouldn't call him a follower of Jesus Christ, but he's not denying the reality of Jesus, you see? What about the Jewish Talmud, which is basically commentaries of the Jews? And they were mainly compiled between AD 400 and 600, although some of them go all the way back to around the time of Christ. The Jewish Babylonian Talmud noted the Lord's existence. Some of its writings originated in the first century AD, but were compiled later. Its testimony to Jesus' existence is extremely hostile, which makes it even more valuable. It charges that Christ, who is called Ben Pandera, the son of Pandera, was born out of wedlock after his mother had been seduced by a Roman soldier named Pandera or Pantera. So they're, they're getting everything all twisted or either they're intentionally twisting it. Ben Pandera, son of Pandera, no, son of the Virgin. Christ, the son of the Virgin Mary. What about evidence from so-called church fathers? Sometimes they're called patristic writers. Polycarp, 
155. Polycarp lived in the city of Smyrna in Asia Minor. He spoke of Christ passionately and wrote against certain heretics of his day. Irenaeus, who lived around AD 130 to 200, said that Polycarp knew the Apostle John and others who had, quote, seen the Lord. This was recorded by Eusebius. Polycarp was put to death for his faith in Christ, reportedly serving Jesus Christ for 86 years. This man is right here at the end of the first century AD, near the end of it, and here he is, and he is losing his life. He's giving his life. Is he going to do that for something that has no evidence to back it up? That doesn't make any sense. Already died for a myth. Would you die for the Greek god Hermes? I mean, that would be foolish, right? You don't do that. You have to believe in something with all your heart to die for it. Other patristic writers who affirm Christ's existence from the origin. A.D. 185 to 253, Justin Martyr, A.D. 100 to 165, Tertullian, A.D. 160 to 215, Clement of Alexandria, A.D. 180 to 215. He was put to death by Pontius Pilate. And all of these facts are shadows, sometimes twisting the truth, but still affirming that he was real. But we also have evidence from other sources, such as the Roman Catechism. Now, underneath the city of Rome, is something that is really amazing. They have estimated that there are about 600 miles of tunnels underneath the city of Rome with millions, millions of graves underneath the city of Rome. And one thing that's really interesting about this is Christianity, evidence of people believing in Jesus Christ is found throughout the Roman catacombs. You know, you just think about everything that the Bible tells us about Rome. I don't have really have time to go into all that. But you know, eventually, by the time we read the Philippians, all the same day of Caesar's household salute. I mean, he went all the way to the top in Rome. And there were some even in Caesar's household who were apparently converted. So beneath Rome is a maze of tunnels that served from the second to the fifth century as they as tombs and secret places of worship during times of persecution for early Christians. There are some 600 miles of these subterranean passages with 1,175,000 to 4 million graves. The vaults are filled with artwork related to faith in Christ, such as the figure of a fish, frequently containing the word ichthus, which is the Greek word fish. The letters were an acrostic that means this, Jesus Christ 
God's own Savior. Why would all of these millions of people living so close to the time of Christ have died for years? You don't see millions of people dying like that for Zeus. They understood that Jesus was real, that he still is real. That he's not dead, but he's alive. He's not here, but he is risen. What about his story? What about his impact on his story? History. There's no other person who's ever lived who's had the impact on this world that Jesus Christ has had. When people today fly to other parts of the world, they get on the internet and they have to put in their dates of departure, dates of arrival, but those dates count back down to the time of Christ coming to earth. And my wife and I were talking about the other day. She says, uh, I saw somebody using these dates. It says CE and BCE. She said, What is that all about? And I said, Well, it's supposed to stand for Common Era and Before Common Era because they, they're trying to take Christ out of everything. She said, Well, they're still counting down to the time of Christ coming out. <laughs> and I thought, That's a really good point. They tried to get rid of Christ, but they can't. He's there, and he's going to be there. Think about, I remember Y2K, even some of you may not even know what I'm talking about. about <laughs> but I was working in computers during Y2K, and I had to stay up all night, the last night before Y2K, because everybody thought the computers were going to explode. <laughs> so I sat there about to doze off, you know, as I'm watching the computers and everything. But the problem was, you know, the dating system, two, two uh, numerous, uh, numerical dates, you know, two numbers for the date instead of four. Well, we've got all of these computer systems that are using that kind of dating system. It all goes back to Christ. There's all kinds of ways we can talk about that Christ has influenced this world in a major, major way. So he has had his impact on this world. But we cannot neglect evidence from the Bible itself. Now someone may say, well, why would you go to the Bible to prove anything about Jesus? Because doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? Of course, the Bible is going to talk about Jesus. Oh, it's not that simple, you see, because there were things that were written thousands of years or revealed thousands of years before Jesus ever came to earth. And the Bible itself is special because it has an unparalleled unity, it has scientific foreknowledge, it has flawless factual accuracy, it has hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. It makes this book different from any other book in the world because it came from God. There's no other logical explanation for it. And the whole Bible tells us about Jesus Christ. Jesus who lived the purest life ever lived. Jesus who taught the greatest teachings ever taught. 
Jesus, who confirmed his teachings with miracles, including raising people from the dead, and there were plenty of witnesses to see it. A man who'd been dead for four days brought back to life. Had the greatest impact on man, fulfilled hundreds of prophecies. 4000 BC, it says the seed of woman would be bruised. 1900 BC, he was to be the seed of Abraham. 1700 BC, he would be the last and greatest of Judah's kings. 1500 BC, the Passover lamb was to be slain on the 14th of Obed, the first month in the Jewish calendar. Have you ever wondered why God chose the 14th of Obed? I don't know that anything in the Bible explicitly tells us why God said the Passover lamb was to be slain on the 14th of Obed. 14 seems kind of like a random number, you know, when we first look at it. But this lamb has to be a male lamb of the first year without blemish, without spot. I submit to you that the reason why God chose that date is because he knew that some 1,500 years later, that would be the night they would come to kill his lamb. That would be the night, the night of the Passover. That would be the night that the mob would come to take away the land. And so much more we can say about what he 1000 BC, he was to be of the lineage of David. He would die when his flesh would not be corrupted. His hands and his feet would be pierced. People would cast lots for his garments. He would have no bones broken. He was to be betrayed by a friend. He was to be given gall and vinegar to drink. His enemies would shake their heads at him. 740 BC, he was to be born of a virgin. He would be gentle and compassionate. He was to be spat upon and beaten. He would be silent as a lamb before his accusers. He was to be numbered with the transgressors, criminals. 735 BC, the exact location of his birth. Is that specific or what? But thou, Bethlehem, a prophet, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Micah 5, to the ruler in Israel, who has always existed in eternal past. He would set up his kingdom during Roman reign. That right there, Daniel 2, you either get that right or you don't. Listen, if the Messiah didn't come during the days of the Roman Empire, he's never coming. Because that's it right there. The Roman Empire is gone. Christ came and he set up that kingdom that Daniel prophesied 600 years before Jesus came to earth. That's powerful. And Daniel also foretold what the future world empires were going to be also. 520 B.C., he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. The exact location of his death also is foretold. Zechariah 12.10, not just his birth, but where he would die, Jerusalem. So, yes, he died for us. But as we said, he arose from the dead. We got evidence for that too. It's not my purpose to deal in great detail about the resurrection because I believe Someone else is going to deal with that, but I will tell you that the most accurate book in all the world records it. And I will tell you that we know the disciples transformed from fearful to fearless after this happened. Christianity grew rapidly throughout the world, even among its enemies. Even those extra biblical sources confirm that. 
spreading all over Rome, Roman catacombs, the eyewitness testimony, Paul says, look, there were hundreds of witnesses to his resurrection. And many of them are still alive today. If you don't believe it, go ask them yourself. They're still alive. They'll tell you what they saw. It can be verified. And of course, the empty tomb. But they wanted to stop Christianity dead in its tracks. Okay, produce the body. Produce the body of Jesus Christ. Never was found, never will be found, because he is not here, he is risen. Amen. So, <clears throat> Jesus Christ not only arose from the grave, but he ascended to heaven. Please open your Bible. About the hope that we have, verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veils, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, who made a high priest forever after the order of his death. The veil, what is this talking about? And when we go over to Hebrews chapter 10, 19 and 20, it's talking about the same kind of thing. It says, Hebrews 10, 19 20, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. What is this talking about? Francis is talking about pattern of the tabernacle and later on the temple. Now anybody know, who knows me knows I'm not going to pass up an opportunity to preach on the tabernacle. <laughs> but I've got a good reason, okay? <clears throat> because this verifies the reality of Jesus Christ as, as powerful as anything else in the Bible. Because it is full of prophecies that point people to Jesus Christ. In fact, the entire concept of God dwelling in a tent among men is clearly a foreshadowing of the time when deity would take on a fleshly tabernacle, dwell among men, and die alone. So the writer of Hebrews tells us, hey, this is the example and shadow of heavenly things. This is the, the patterns of things in the heavens, a shadow of good things to come. And the high priest of that tabernacle, of course, symbolic of Christ. I wish we had time to read Exodus 28. Because in Exodus 28, it says the high priest wore a breastplate of judgment that had the names of the children of Israel on it. And it says that he shall bear the judgment of Israel upon his heart. That's a title of Christ. Christ knows our names, and I believe the judgment of all men is weighed on his heart. You just think about it. One day, he's going to have to cast who knows how many souls into eternal torment because they would not listen to him. They would not believe in him. They would not follow him. And I believe that weighs the judgment of mankind weighs on the heart of our high priest. I wish we had time to read Leviticus 23, 10 through 12. But I will tell you quickly that in verse 12 it talks about a he lamb of the first year without blemish to be sacrificed. And it talks about in verses 10 and 11 that there's going to be an offering of first fruits on the morrow after the Sabbath. First day of the week. Jesus Christ 
the first fruits from the dead. That's what Paul called him in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. And right here in the middle of Leviticus is the first fruits being brought forth on the first day of the week, tomorrow after the Sabbath. Leviticus 16, the scapegoat. This goat belonged to the Lord. What's going to happen to the Lord's goat? It's going to be slain. What's going to happen to this goat? It can escape. The scapegoat is us. The Lord's goat is Christ. Because of his sacrifice, we get to escape the punishment that he had to suffer. So much more. I really wish we could study it in more detail, but I'll close with this. God's plan for saving man is clearly seen in this foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Because this represented his sacrifice. The labor, according to Hebrews 10.22, represents water baptism. Our bodies washed with pure water. And the holy place represents the church. Well, if you want to be in the church, friends, you've got to be washed. Jesus Christ loved the church, gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water. So it was washed, cleansed, sanctified to be in the holy place. And look, this labor is out here in the world. This outer court represents the world. It's not for people who are holy because water baptism is not for people who are saved. It's for people who are lost. It's for people who are out in the world Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, Paul says. But look where he put the altar of incense that represents prayer. It's for people who are holy. It's a spiritual blessing, and all spiritual blessings are in Christ. So the sinner's prayer that is so popular today is reputed by the tabernacle's pattern in 1400 BC, and the necessity of water baptism is affirmed by the tabernacle of 1400 BC. And anybody who tries to deviate from this pattern, you know what God said about that? He says, when they go to the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die. Why was God so serious about that? Because he knew that this pattern was going to involve the salvation of mankind. And if anybody tries to deviate from this pattern, they're worthy of death. That's the essentiality of baptism in 1400 BC and the sacrifice of Christ. And we already talked about the veil, all these things. In fact, he that believeth in Christ, death, burial, resurrection, and is baptized shall be saved. You'll be holy. You'll be sanctified. You'll be cleansed. You'll be washed. Mark 16, 16. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that God has made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Well, then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them. In other words, they were added to the church. Represented by the Holy Place. Friends, this is Acts chapter 2 in 1400 BC. Isaiah says God reveals the end from the beginning. God already knows the end at the very beginning. But
But it doesn't stop here because we keep on going through Acts 2 and it says, and they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, represented by the lampstand. The seven lamps, seven means perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 19 said. And in fellowship with other priests in the holy place, and in the breaking of the bread, literally in the Greek it says, breaking of the bread, the Lord's supper, represented by the table of showbread, and in prayers, represented by the altar of Jesus. This is Acts 2. God knew what he was doing, of course, but this also confirms that God's plan to save man through Jesus Christ was foretold in this book long before Jesus ever came to this earth to actually fulfill these promises. So, in closing, right there, that's where we want to be. That's heaven. But you can't get to heaven without going through the Lord's church. And you can't get into the Lord's church without being washed of your sins. But friends, there's not a one of us who could have our sins washed away without that right there. The sacrifice lamb of God. We've seen evidence from Christianity's early enemies, uninspired Jewish writers, church fathers, Roman catacombs, historical impact, and the Bible. And friends, you cannot deny the reality of Jesus Christ. And if you do, then I'm going to question your integrity because the evidence is there and it is undeniable. Believe in Jesus. Serve him. He wants to save you. He wants you to go to heaven. Repent of your sins. Change your mind about the way you've been living your life. It's time to start a new life in Jesus Christ. Confess your faith in Jesus before others. Jesus said, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess before my Father, which is in Matthew 10, 32. And as we saw on the screen there, you've got to be washed. <coughs> now, why tearest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. That's 22 16. Now, <coughs> when I was growing up, I didn't understand what I needed to do to be saved. And uh, a good man of God showed me that verse right there, Acts 22 16. And I, I just could not deny the power of that verse. Be baptized and wash away thy sins. And that very night, I was baptized to wash away my sins. Maybe you could do that tonight. You know, maybe you have questions. That's commendable. There's nothing wrong with it. We encourage you to seek answers from God's Word. And we'll help you with that. Maybe you need to come back to faithfulness as someone who's already been baptized in Christ. Have you left Christ to go back into the darkness? Come back to the light, please. We love you. God loves you. If you need to respond, please do so as we sing this song.